Hey, folks, just a heads up that we're doing things a little differently on the Barbed Podcast this week. This is a remaster of one of our most popular episodes, one with Dr. Jordan Shallow, and it's one that also triggered some serious conversation online. We hope you enjoy. But you're going to load that convergence. You're going to all they do is just look at the physics of it. And so, physics and biomechanics are two separate fields. Our body is like, it's like lightning, man. Like it's a path of least resistance. Look at a picture of a neuron and look at a picture of a lightning bolt hitting something. Tell me, there's literally any difference at all. So our body transmits force the same way lightning transmits force. Welcome to the Bar Bend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by barbend.com. Today, I'm joined by Barbend's fitness editor, Jake Boley, and we're talking to Dr. Jordan Shallow, a chiropractor and elite powerlifter best known online as The Muscle Doc. I'll cut straight to the point. Jordan is, hands down, one of the most knowledgeable individuals I've ever talked to when it comes to movement and sports performance. His understanding of movement patterns and advice for how to best prep your body to handle lifting in its variety of forms is almost without peer. As an internationally competitive powerlifter, Jordan also walks the walk and combines his clinical experience with in-gym knowledge. When Jordan Shallow says he can deadlift 700 pounds on any given day, you know he's telling the truth. This guy is the real deal. In our conversation, Jordan talks about moving smarter, what he loves and hates in strength sports, and why your warm-up is probably broken. Also, I just want to say, we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbend podcast in your app of choice. Every month, we give away a box full of Barbend swag to one of our listeners who leaves a rating and review. We are very lucky today to have Jordan Shallow joining us in the Barband office, and I'm also joined on this recording by Jake Boley, the Barband fitness editor. I'm really, really excited to kind of have a ringside seat to their conversation as they get really in-depth on some topics I know are near and dear to their hearts. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us. Would you mind giving us a little background and listeners a little background on your career thus far and how you came to be where you are today? Lucky and ringside, I think, is setting unrealistic expectations. So no, you're overpromising, and I'm going to underdeliver, man. That's like going to Michelin star on your first date. You got to come out. You got to come out soft. Anything, go, anything off the value menu? Going to Michelin tires on your first date. Okay, there you go. Now yeah, we're talking. There you go. Yeah, that's, that's more. That's, that's more along the lines. My wheelhouse. Uh, yeah. So my name is Jordan Chow. Uh, I'm a chiropractor strength coach. Uh, I own a couple of businesses. I, I have a podcast. Uh, I travel around. Um, I don't have a home. I'm homeless. Bit of a nomad. So I drift around and I lift weights and talk about the weights I lift. How long have you been interested in strength training and how'd your journey kind of get started there? Sure, yeah. I, um, so I grew up in Canada, a small town in southwestern Ontario. I played hockey as a kid and got into weight training just to get better in, in season. So it's kind of like off-season workouts with barbells and uh, started skipping practice to go to the gym and started putting on weight and putting on muscle and putting on strength. And then the barbell sort of took center stage to, to the rink. And when I kind of aged out around 20 and went to grad school in California, that's when like the rubber really hit the road in training. So I would say 15-ish. I think I read like maybe my first Poliquin article when I was like 15, and I don't think I've ever been the same since. I, I, I'm in the minority here, and I got to just go and hand this over to the two, hockey, the two former hockey players on the podcast right now. 
Um, yeah, man. Well, thank you for coming in the office. I can't wait to dive into some of the coaching mindset that you have, because I look to you as more of like an idol when it comes to a lot of information. And to kind of get to that point, I want to jump right into the topics I want to cover. And one of those is a quote that you shared a while ago really stuck with me. And that quote is, if you can't stand on one leg, you don't deserve to be squatting on two. Yeah. Instagram loves so, that one. So I would love for you to kind of elaborate on that a little bit and kind of discuss how that kind of came to fruition if with you through your mindset. Uh, and, and Jake, I'm going to need you to stand on one leg throughout this entire answer here. Brilliant. That'd be great. I think it can be a long-winded answer. I do like weekend courses on this shit. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, a lot of it stemmed from my clinical practice. So like, I was in clinical practice as a chiropractor for about three and a half, four years before I like went on the road and just did exclusive teaching. Um, and it was more or less the biggest issue that I came across when dealing with like hip and low back and even to some extent knee and well, mostly knee and ankle pain um, with barbell athletes was the lack of stability, but also the lack of understanding of stability as a separate adaptation, right? We get sold a lot of like gimmicky shit to strengthen muscles of stability, right? And I think that's if I could distill down what I teach about fundamentally, what I teach about is the difference between strength and stability as adaptations in the body, like. No one looks at me and goes like, I bet you that guy's a good runner. Like, I just, I don't know, I just walked out a hallway with suitcases and I'm frankly out of breath, right? But like I can lift some for a few. Like you put 700, 700 on a bar, it's like I'm sweet. Like that'll be no issues. I'll wake up the next day and be able to do that again. Where it's like if you march like Elliot Kipjudge in here, who's like the first sub two hour marathon runner and you loaded a bar and you had him do like a three by 10, he'd be fucking smoked, right? So but just as endurance or strength are understood to be different adaptations, stability and strength are also different adaptations, right? So we get sold like, you know, we get sold hip circles, we get sold like, you know, these ab crunch things, we get sold like bands and all this stuff, but it's like rotator cuff, core, glutes. These are all muscles of stability, not strength. But yet we strengthen them with the wrong adaptation. We speak the wrong physical language within the body, which works for people who are like, let's call them tourists to physical activity, but like the, population I was lucky enough to work with was all high level athletes. You need to be very physically literate in the adaptations you're trying to make. So, you know, if you can't stand on one leg, don't squat with two is just born of this idea that like it lets pre-screen and calibrate for your unilateral stability the function of your hips before we actually go load the action of your hips, right? So our ability to exert force and strength is is predicated directly and correlated directly to our ability to resist force. It's the fundamental difference between strength and stability. So as I look to improve and scale progressions of stability with with my patients, I saw the very expedited results in pain, but more so like being in the sports realm, I saw great strides in performance. Right. And dealing with like advanced level athletes, like you can take someone from a 100 pound squat to a 200 pound squat. Clean up the technique, train higher frequency, you know, early stage skill acquisition stuff, and they'll get there. But the strategy you get from one to two is way different than getting from eight to nine. So an eight hundred pound squat to a nine hundred squat, you really got to be like uh, calling all calling on all horses, so to speak. So that's where I really started to hang my hat on this idea of like, okay, in order to progress forward, we need to realize that the anchor is because we we're putting the cart before the horse. We're worrying about exerting force rather than stabilizing and resisting force. So that was kind of how that that started, and that's a fundamental thought process in the way I go about training and allocating mobility work and also how I let the reins loose on allowing people to load bilaterally for strength. Gotcha. And I know you touched, you briefly touched on that in this, but why do you think a vast majority of the population think that 
the way to improve is just by simply loading as opposed to focusing on kind of what we just like what you just touched upon. That's, do you think that's marketing or do you 100%, think that's 100% man because like any jackass with a YouTube account can sell you some like banded shit to strengthen where it's like stability like the way I sell stability man is I I, I book 47 weekends next year. And I, I get on a plane and I fly to Kuwait or I'll fly to Manchester or I'll fly to Sydney and I'll have to teach it. Because once I teach it to you, once you know the fundamental, like stability is basis support and center of mass from like a physics perspective. So all you need to do with progress is figure out, okay, what is this hypothetical, constantly variant center of mass I have? How do I deviate it? And what is my basis support and how do I limit it? introductions of one of those two adaptations is going to progress the instability as a stimulus, right? So I think that's where a lot of people get lost is like, because you're asking people to think, right? Well, if I just buy this thing and put it around my whatever, my knees and start to monster walk my way across the gym, it's like, I don't have to think, right? Where it's like progressions in stability as a separate adaptation are a little bit more cerebral. It's like, okay, how do I now in this position maybe limit my base support or how do I in this position deviate my center of mass to make this more unstable? And there's like rabbit holes you can go down as far as like plane specificity and and certain patterns of stability that you can load purposely by using external load to deviate a combined center of mass of you and the weight. But fundamentally, it's as easy as standing on one leg and that's why the the, the simple distilled version of you know, if you can't stand on one leg, don't squat with two. That's why I think it resonates with people because there, there's a lot behind the scenes of that very simple statement. Got it. And when it comes to stability work, do you like to program that before following a workout? Do you like to have a full block dedicated to stability work? And how do you kind of structure that? Yeah. So I think the biggest mistake people make is, oh, I'm going to take like six weeks and work on my imbalances. Like, oh, so you're going to take six weeks and waste your fucking time. Right. No, it's stability work is always going to be what um, predisposes your ability to acquire skill. Right. In anything, in a bicep curl, in a bench press, in a in a snatch, your skill is totally uh, dependent on your stability. So, like, there's this camp right now, kind of like, oh, like you you don't need to do unilateral work. It's like that's cute, bro. Like. What 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 peer review journal did you read that? Oh, and also, how much do you fucking squat? Like, the, yeah, at four hundred pounds, sure. If you want to just squat four hundred pounds and just squat like your body weight to warm up and do all that, like you just need to squat. Come talk to me when the bar is loaded over seven hundred, and then we'll chat because that doesn't hold up anymore, right? So when it comes to programming stability work, it almost becomes like my gatekeeper to load, especially with the way I travel, right? Like you know, it's nothing for me now to be on a plane for twelve, fifteen hours at a time. So when I I will not load a bar until I've scaled my own ability to resist the force of my own body because then I'm going to load extra physiologically. I'm going to load more than 275 pounds in a squat regardless of the session. So if I can't stabilize internally my own body weight, I'm not going to then load a barbell heavier than my own body weight. It doesn't make any sense, right? So the way I do it is I integrate it in with my actual loading. So like a lot of people do an arbitrary just kind of warm up. And they just, you know, they find a little turf part of the gym and they grab like a foam roller and a cross ball and they just fucking roll around like manatees. And it's just like, what are you doing? Like, just like we spend so much time, like, oh, and like I'm weak on my lockout on my bench. So I'm gonna do like dips and I'm gonna do, and we have like this fucking rain man, beautiful mind, goodwill hunting, like writing programming on the bathroom mirror. And then all of a sudden, when it actually matters of getting prepared for a workout. We just throw shit at a wall and see what sticks. It's like, why does that process not permeate our mobility and stability training? 
like getting access to these unstable positions through mobility and then using mediums of instability to stabilize before strengthening, right? Mobility, stability, strength. That's the sign on the door. And it's not, it's a fucking hashtag, yeah, but at the same time, it is in fact the algorithm in which our body works, right? I can't train stability with my arms at my sides. It's too structurally stable. I need to have the mobility to get into the full overhead position of my shoulder. So mobility first to get there. If you're already there, then stabilize in that position. The medium is the message. You can't stabilize with a barbell. It's a very stable medium. You stabilize with something like a kettlebell because it's an unstable. Like right? it's not. It's not rocket science. But people just they 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 miss, they just miss the boat. Like it's like math. I think I don't know. I stopped doing math in like tenth grade because I like lifted weights. But like what I do remember of math, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have to do brackets, exponents, division. Right? There's the order of operations. There's a physiological order of operations we need to follow in our body, like, and that's the way you should program. If you don't have access to a range of motion of instability, mobilize into that position. Once you're in that position, stabilize that position. Progress it by either limiting the base support, deviating the center of mass, then put a fucking bar on your back and integrate it. Perfect. So like, stretch your, I don't know, say you have a hard time getting into hip extension for a single leg RDL. Stretch your rec fam, do a couch stretch, do a single leg RDL, squat an empty bar. Do that again. Okay, put put a 135 on. Do it again. Put 185. Do it again. Do 225. All right, sweet. Now just go work out now. Got it. Do you ever have times when you hop off a plane and you do get ready for a squat session and you have red flags go off throughout your stability and like let's say more mobility focused pre-work before you get to loading the bar? And if so, how do you kind of work around that? Oh yeah, all the time, man. But those are usually some of my best sessions because it's like they're like I call these stability drills like gatekeeper drills. Like it's like Gandalf with the stick. It's like you're not passing 100%. That's it though. Like, dude, if I can't go through, like, say I'm in a low bar squat. So I'm a huge believer of like specificity, like plane specific um, stability through the range I'm going to load. So like my low bar squat is my widest variation of squat. My hips are the most abducted and externally rotated. So I want to make sure my femur relative to my pelvis has that stability. So I'll go through a drill like a hip airplane to make sure I can recreate that same angle that my femur is relative to my pelvis when I'm in the hole, but I'm standing on one leg. So I know when I'm in the hole, I'm functionally stable, not structurally stable. Structure is like the discs in your spine, your SI joints, your labrum of your hip, the meniscus of your knee, all things that tend to go wrong when we don't really pre-screen for stuff like this. And the community that goes, oh, like, oh, just squat for a warm-up. Because these are the same people that end up in my office, like, oh, I don't understand. I do the same thing every day. It's like, exactly. You're never calibrating. You're never, you're never calibrating for what is structure and what is function and what your functional contribution is to your, your stability. Most people just rely totally on structure until the structure gets damaged. So when it comes to like actually integrating it into workouts and when I start to see red flags, it's like I will do it until I can do it. Like I will, if I do a hip airplane and I look like a baby giraffe, it's like, all right, then I'm going to go empty bar, quarter. Empty bar, quarter, 135, 185, 225, 275, 315. I'll do it and I'm not going to turn the taps open. Like I'm not going to put, you know, working weights at higher percentages, 70 plus percent on the bar until I can do that. So it, it allows me to, to in real time have a have a, a a lens in which to look through how stable I am. It's like a litmus test. It's an assessment every single time. Some days, like if I'm in the same city for like three or four days, by day four, like pretty sweet. Like I'm not really sitting on planes. Like I've been up, I've been on my feet, I've been walking around. That could be that could be like a three minute warm up. Got it. So it's almost like you're self regulating every warm up. And then to kind of give I guess readers and listeners a few tips there. 
When it comes to kind of auto-regulating or self-regulating that, do you have any cues that you specifically look for? Like, is it a range of motion that you feel like you need to achieve every time you're getting ready? Or is it like how you're feeling under a bar one day? Like, do you have any more like direct insights that people can start applying to their workouts now? Yeah, I mean, stability is kind of, uh, it's, it's subjective. Think of it this way, like, you, I'm sure you've lifted a bar at one point and gone, God, God, that felt heavy. And someone goes, hey man, that moved pretty fast. It's like, if you're unstable and you're like in foot and knee or wobbling and you have a hard time stabilizing your hip, for example, no one's gonna like you're gonna go, oh god, that felt unstable. No one's gonna walk by and be like, oh, that looked great. It's like, no, like it's very what what you should tie it to is you should always tie it to the objective improvement on the back end. Now, like maybe more to your point or to your question, it's like when it comes to stability cues, it's like you're basically looking for you're looking for your body trying to find structural stability, right? And that can be a little tricky. And that's where understanding the function of the shoulder, hip, and spine become really important. Like with the hip, like say you're doing sticking with a single leg RDL or the walking lunge or unilateral hip movement, you're looking for the like I look at the foot, right? Like I look at the foot trying to almost catch the hip. When I see the foot sort of just wavering back and forth, think of like holding a broom handle in the palm of your hand. And as that broom handle starts to deviate, you start to react and catch it. Now you're trying to keep this broom handle upright. Now at the top of that, so the bottom of the broom handle of the hand is is comparative to the foot. And the top of the broom handle, if left uncapped and just free in space, is kind of like the hip, right? So the best way to keep that broom handle in your hand would just be to grab it at the top. Right, so it's not wavering around. It's like, well, that's hip stability. So the second I see this foot stopping, trying to react and catch the tibia and the femur, and it just stays put, it's like, okay, the hip is now doing its job. So that's a pretty good indicator from a lower body position of like how it is that you could start to qualify a subjective stimulus or a subjective assessment like that. Got it. When it comes to hip stability, what do folks usually lack when their hips are not stable underweight? Oh, easy. From range of motion standpoint, extension, internal rotation. Internal rotation is the position in which hip stability seems to generate its or seems to be demanded highest in gait cycle. Two reasons. Good things happen when we extend and internally rotate, and bad things happen when we extend and externally rotate. If you watch like Usain Bolt or a sprinter, like gait cycle mechanics, that's function of the hip. It's not fucking something that's sold on late night TV. Hip function is like it's a buzzword, right? But it's not like a shake weight. It's not, it's not a Bosu ball, right? It's it's how our how we've adapted as biped ambulatory creatures to integrate the movement of our pelvis and the movement of the femur. Period. And how we integrate that in system with the rest of our body. So moving in gait cycle and understanding gait cycle mechanics allows us to then express like, okay, when our hips are in extension and internal rotation, that's when we get the greatest amount of output in propulsion, right? Because that is function. Like sure, squatting is, you know, they'll put up the little like baby and he's like, oh look, like it's, it's like, that's not fucking proof of concept. Or like the Vietnamese guy like hacking a dart in a full squat, like playing fucking dice on the sidewalk. And it's like that also too not proof of concept that squatting is quote unquote functional. The guy like taking a shit. I love that one. Oh, like you take a shit. It's like, listen, dude, how many steps do you take a day? And how many shits do you take a day? Put one in one hand, one in the other, see what fills up quicker. It's like you're going to take more steps. So function is gait cycle. So when it comes to the hips, one thing you'll see lacking is extension and internal rotation of the hips because that's the range of motion, the mobility demanded, the prerequisite range of motion in which we can then start to train stability. Right, The mobility, stability, strength thing again. So that's the easiest thing you see is like the tight hip flexor, but also the lack of internal rotation. Got it. 
So something you mentioned and kind of touched on are the feet. So I want to ask you a question about weightlifting shoes because we do a lot of work here with weightlifting shoes. I review weightlifting shoes and we recently put up a video on are weightlifting shoes worth it? And one of my rationales was that if you do not have the fundamental movement patterns to even squat, then I don't think you should create a false stability with a shoe. And some people had different opinions on that. I would love to hear your opinion on that and if you agree or disagree. Yeah, so I mean, I've my biggest squat I've done in flats, um, but I've squatted. So I've done 730 in shoes, and I've done or in Olympic shoes, like Romaleo twos, and then I've done 749 in flats. Um, I think, obviously, for Olympic weightlifting, it helps just because the bar is loaded more anteriorly, and we're going to use a more uh, we're going to use a greater moment of knee flexion just based off maintaining that center of mass over the midfoot. Um, so here's the caveat, and I'm going to circuitously get to the answer. But if I'm wearing knee wraps when I squat, it makes a lot of sense to wear heel shoes because it's like, all right, here I'm going to bolster my ability to extend my knee, really, you know, almost take my knee out of the equation, my knee extensor activity out of the equation because I have this three meter elastic band that's cutting off circulation of my foot and like all I want to do is I don't even care about the weight of my back, I'm like these fucking things off my knees. But if that's going to help me extend my knee and a heel shoe is going to help me flex my knee, then I'm a, I want to draw I want to lean into that tailspin, right? So it makes sense from a quote unquote functional standpoint of the sport of powerlifting if you're wearing like classic raw powerlifting with wraps. It makes sense that way. Um but again, it's like here I have a low bar position, which is going to force me to sit back, but I have a, a wedge under my heel, which is going to drive me into that knee. So you're playing a physics and biomechanics game at the same time, like work being forced times distance. We have to effectively do less work because the distance of the bar is traveling less because it's lower and closer to that moment of force production at the hip. So I think most people shouldn't unless they're pre-screening for the function like barefoot they can go through all this stuff and then if they're going to use that as an adjunct because the way i look at olympic weightlifting shoes man it's like it's like, you know the hot gates in 300 where numbers don't count for nothing and all that shit that's kind of what olympic weightlifting shoes do is they take three dimensions of potential dysfunction and instability and they converge it through one plane and essentially one joint right like it's going through the fucking knee Right. And the knee itself is propped up a lot on its structural stability, right? ACL, MCL, PCL, uh, ALL, medial lateral meniscus. Like these are all things that cannot be contracted. So your hips better be functioning like top notch before we go converging everything through the other end of the femur, right? So if you have like a, say you're lacking the, say you're lacking rotation on one side and that rotation gets suggested in greater demand on the other side. Those things like were fucking ski boots, man. My Romaleos, I feel like I'm hitting the slopes. Like I, I, I'm drilled to the floor. Where it's like my my chucks are a little bit more malleable. I can express dysfunction through rotation. My foot can sort of slide on the platform. But with all these shoes, it's like there's only one plane for that dysfunction to go to, and it's flexion extension of the knee. So if you're calibrating, you're assessing, and like you're you're firing on all cylinders out it, and you can use it as an adjunct to overload a certain part of the uh, the musculature that's better developed to keep you in a better torso position. Yeah, sweet. Minimize shear forces through the low back or what, whatever your reason is. I'm all for it. But if you're not doing that, you're, you're playing with fire, in my opinion, because everything's just going through and increasing a greater flexion extension moment at the knee. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's like great point because so two years ago, I ruptured my quad hey, like fully, oh. full, fully off the knee. <laughs> and a lot of that had to do with, and my, in theory, and I'm not exactly sure why they couldn't give me a reason, obviously, but 
a lot of it had to do with, I think, wearing lifting shoes for so long and not addressing some of my stability issues. And I think the sheer force of hitting a heavier squat, I was doing like a four by four at like 80%, nothing crazy. It just one day popped. And I think it finally came down to a point of like not addressing these issues. And it finally hit a point of like, we stated earlier, like I hit my cap on what I could not it's basically a misuse issue over time. Yeah, so I mean, injuries are funny, and the, the narrative that gets spun around injuries from people who really don't understand it. Like right now, the the common paradigm built around injuries. So an injury is applied force greater than tissue tolerance, right? Like that could be a laceration. Like if you get stabbed, the applied force of the knife was greater than the tissue tolerance of the skin. That's getting stabbed. But like applied force greater than tissue tolerance is how a lot of PTs and rehab and unlicensed myo, whatever the fucks. Are addressing injury. It's like, oh, we're, all we're going to do is we're going to do load management and then we're going to do like tempo work and isolation and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, but can someone please ask the question of why we're applying so much force to this particular area to begin with? Right. So, like, I think the conversation of, and that's when you start to ask biomechanical questions. That's when you start to ask sophisticated questions and go, okay, but like, obviously, we're overloading that knee extensor moment and there's too much shear for, or there's too much knee flexion extension going through the quad, where it's like, would you have skated on that if you if you were doing low bar and chucks or something like that, rather than you know, you're maybe more of an Olympic background, higher front in in in, um, in heels. So I, I think right now, like there has to be a shift to at least the other side of the equation. Cause I know a lot of people like who low bar squat and heels who've torn their quad. Like I, I tore part of my right VMO a halfway up my quad I'm doing a three by three at three hundred kilos. Not fun. It's it's honestly other than a torn pack, it's the worst pain ever. But it's it's more proof of concept to me that the dysfunction likely wasn't through the sagittal plane. It wasn't through flexion extension. It was the convergence or maybe the accumulation of dysfunction through all three planes of movement: frontal, transverse, sagittal, or X, Y, and Z. However you want to look at it, getting funneled only through flexion extension. Well, what's going to extend the knee? Quad applied force. It has nothing to do with the tissue tolerance of quad. Your quads, I could load up any fucking leg extension in the city of New York right now and we could both go up and top it out. But it's like that's the the tissue tolerance of the quad is not on trial. So when people are doing rehab with like these isometrics and they're just going like light and light, light and heavier and heavier, heavier, it's like, hold on a sec. That grim reaper of applied force is going to be somewhere at a number now. It might be greater because we're worrying about like we're worrying about the tissue tolerance. But if we're not worrying, like why didn't the other quad tear? Well, it's like there's obviously a convergence of applied force going through this particular tissue for some reason. But no, you go ahead, you do your isometrics. Yeah, you go do your nihilistic rehab crap where all you're doing is like attenuating load and just worrying about like scaling exercise selection, all that stuff. You go ahead, you let me know what happens because that quad's going to reflect. It might be a bigger number because the tissues are more tolerant, but you're going to load that convergence. You're going to all they do is just look at the physics of it. And so, physics and biomechanics are two separate fields. Our body is like, it's like lightning, man. Like it's a path of least resistance. Look at a picture of a neuron. And look at a picture of a lightning bolt hitting something. Tell me there's literally any difference at all. So our body transmits force the same way lightning transmits force. It's not these, every time I see some sagittal fucking plane squat analysis, like, well, like my angle of my hip is here because my femurs are like so long. So my chest like has to be kind of on my knees. It's like, right. Then where in this equation are you herniating three discs in your lower back? 
right? Because it's like we don't factor in where stability exists through that rotational plane because we're just looking at two fucking dimensions in the sagittal plane. It doesn't make any sense, but that's where biomechanics lives. That's where stability lives. Look at the fiber orientation of your rotator cuff. Look at the fiber orientation of your transverse abdominus. Look at the tr- fiber orientation of your posterior fiber, your glute mean, your transverse. Everything that stabilizes your body goes around the rotational plane. And it's the one place we don't look. And that's the side of the equation that's going to indicate where force starts to go. Tissue tolerance is almost a moot point. <sighs> so upset. it makes me so mad. Injuries, so mad. Injuries are fun. You really, you really opened that with the perfect, with the perfect way to say it. That was fun. Yeah, was fun dude. This is my whole life. I love it. It's so good because I just sit there, and just go wrong, wrong, wrong. But they're not wrong. It's just it's the other side of the story that I have to yell at 160 beats per minute to get the point across because it's like this is especially like in my mixing of worlds like coming from a clinical background but also having like a strength and conditioning background but also being an athletic background and being still competitive in powerlifting it's like i just see where everyone's like blind spot is because i get to look through this really unique lens at sport performance and human performance and it's like guys Fucking just pay attention to the shit, will you? Like, you guys got half the battle sweet, but like, it's such a nihilistic approach because research is always 20, 30 years behind. And it's like, yeah, one day we'll get there. But like, right now, it's like, just think about it. Oh, it's so frustrating. Where are some athletic avenues, and it could be beyond strength sports, where you're seeing the clearest breakdown or you're seeing the most rapid breakdown between this mobility, stability, strength hierarchy? Huh. That's interesting because I work a like, I mean, I work for anything with professional tennis players to WWE wrestlers, so it's like quite the contrast. So I don't know if one, if one particular realm of sport or one sport in, in particular is missing the boat. Like, there's individuals that are doing amazing things. Like, I, one of my one of my favorite strength coaches right now is is a is a NBA strength coach. It's like I fucking hate basketball, but I think what he's doing is brilliant. So his name's Corey Schlesinger. He works with the Phoenix Suns. So it's like, I, I think there's just like any profession, every sport kind of has their problem, but the problem just exists in the individual. It's the indoctrination of, of just antiquated education that comes out through, you know, like write a CSCS test, nothing against NASM, or do write a chiropractic national NBCE national board exam. I just studied for two tests. Like the shit I was going to say to patients, and then the shit I needed to say to the NBCE to get my level four to actually become a practicing chiropractor, right? So it's just... It, we, it's time to re-update the software with a lot of this stuff, right? And the guys who are really on the cutting edge are the people who are saying things that are they're, they're, it's experience based, right? But that's what's going to lead research in the next 20, 30 years is like, oh, wait, hold on, let's take a look at, you know, like what's he talking about with mobility and weight? Maybe stretching isn't a bad thing if we stabilize in those unstable positions. And maybe the methods of static stretching research were kind of fucked up in the past. Or like, you know, taking Corey, for example, like, okay, yeah, maybe microdosing in season is actually a great way to go. And maybe like having real time metrics to assess output potential before a session is actually really smart rather than just retesting it every six weeks. You know what I mean? So I think you're seeing a lot of innovation now that's that's driving a wedge through like the old school and then hopefully where we're headed. So I don't know if one sport in particular is more egregious an offender than another. How much do you think uh, social media has to play in that right there? Yeah, it's, it's dude, it's fucking, ah, man, I could pull up my phone right now and I'm tagged in like 30 different things. Like, what do you think about this? I don't anymore. But it's, consider the source, man. Like, at the end of the day, it, it's whoever the end user is, right? I think, I don't think anyone is trying to 
like I don't think anyone's malicious, right? There's a, there's a quote. It's like don't explain with ignorance or don't explain with malice. What can we be explained with ignorance, right? Like, you know, there was that thing that went viral with like O'Barris talking to Rogan about deadlifting, and I'm like, yeah, like so I got tagged that ten thousand times, and it's like. Rogan's not a bad guy. Hobart, I have some good friends who are close friends with him. I, I know he's not a bad guy. It, you know, he's also not you know, a, a DC or a PhD or, he, but he's got some experience. Fucking one of the strongest dudes in the world, man. And he's, I just think people hear what they want to hear, right? Like, it's it's about community at the end of the day. It's a weird it's a weird frame shift that I've gone through in the last like a couple of years where I'm so dogmatic around like my training principles based off my own experience but it's like at the end of the day man it's fucking reps and sets like who gives a shit like keto dieting has nothing to do with carbohydrates it has everything to do with going to whole foods and like finding like the 30 dollar bread or whatever the fuck you know what i mean like talking to your friends at the water cooler about your fucking cool 30 dollar bread so social media is it's it's a double-edged sword but i think it's been a net positive it's brought a lot of awareness of these topics and it's like if we can have intelligent debates and, and discussions which unfortunately doesn't really exist over the the bows of social media but i think mediums like this where it's like we can go a little bit more in depth like i think podcasting is is a growing medium because it it supports a, a stronger message where it's not 140 characters or less and it's not double tap and fuck this guy and get a load of this so i, I think it's it's headed in the right direction but i do think it's 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 part of the problem but also woven into that part of the solution I love that. Yeah, that was, we actually had the same talk about that with strength sports and social media. So I love that you kind of touched on pretty much you summarized exactly what we said in a way more uh, educated and better spoken way. But, oh, God. <laughs> but um, yeah, man, I appreciate you coming on. I think that wraps up our, uh, our time here. And David? Jordan, before we, before we jump off, since we are talking about social media in such a rosy complexion, no, I'm absolutely kidding on that. Um, where's the best way, what's the best way for people to keep up to date with your work and to keep up to date with where you're teaching around the world? Oh, man. Uh, so, yeah, the Instagram is at the underscore muscle underscore doc. Um, that's like the, the thing I'm on the most if I'm on anything. Uh, the podcast is kind of keeps out. We post once a week. Um, so that kind of gives you a look into where I am. Um, most of the programming stuff we do, most of the seminars and lectures are up there. Uh, so that's www.pre-script.com. I should know this by now. I do this enough. Uh, so prescript.com or pre-script.com. Um, seminar schedule and course schedule for next year is up there. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where you can find me on that. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, yeah thank you so great. much. Yeah, it's awesome. Thanks for having me.